listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. For these final three Sundays in the season of Eastertide, the lectionary will have us reading texts from the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. Because this biblical book can be such a source of both this kind of symbol reading, number crunching speculation, and of complete consternation, I decided that tonight I would focus on this Revelation reading. Now, depending on where along the spectrum of church traditions you had your formation, you might have heard quite a lot of the book of Revelation, or not. Some churches, some preachers pay a lot of attention to the book, relishing the prospect of decoding all of its symbolism, interpreting the meaning of all of those numbers. This calls for wisdom, the author of the book itself writes. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Now, across the ages, rivers of ink have been spilled trying to identify the beast. Various popes, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Muhammad, the Freemasonry movement, and an array of political leaders have all been offered as possible candidates for the beast. And how many heavy metal bands or cheesy occult horror movies have traded on that number. You'll probably remember Harold Camping, the man whose end-of-the-world predictions from a few years back caught a lot of media attention. According to Harold Camping's reading of Revelation and of related apocalyptic writings in the Bible, Christ was to return to earth on May 21, 2011. The saved would then be taken up to heaven while the earth would be left to five months of violence and plagues, culminating in the destruction of the earth on October 21st, 2011. People were swept up, though, in that movement. From our side of the date, it looks simply absurd, but for many in the days and months leading up to it, it seemed credible. And there were stories of people actually spending down to their last dollar because they no longer need it after May 21st. Sometimes what happens in response to stories like that and in response to the oftentimes pretty wild and woolly character of the book of Revelation, what happens is that some Christians just back right away from it altogether. They don't want to go there. When I was quite newly ordained, a respected senior priest colleague told me that he really wished the Holy Spirit had inspired the church to opt for a document called the Didache, or the teaching, rather than for the book of Revelation, which to his mind had caused a great deal of trouble and confusion. And he meant what he said. My first position after ordination was at St. Paul's Church in Fort Garry, where I spent two years as an, as an assistant. Now, that parish had a strong commitment to adult education, 
and every Sunday morning they offered an adult education program. Every year, they'd invite the University of Manitoba New Testament professor, Larry Hurtado, to take a four-week series on a biblical theme of his own choosing, anything that he was interested in at that moment. Well, when I was there in one of those years, Larry Hurtado opted to do the series on the book of Revelation. St. Paul's Church was and still is something of the flagship liberal parish in our diocese. St. Paul's was actually liberal in, in the best sense, in that they welcomed a diversity of views and opinions, such that while Professor Hurtado was himself formed very much in the evangelical scholarly tradition, his sessions were always really well received, openly received, well attended. But revelation? I mean, that's actually the church where that senior priest had told me he wished the Spirit had opted for the Didache instead of Revelation. But you know, it was actually a brilliant move on Hurtado's part. Over four weeks, he unpacked that oftentimes elusive book for us. He demystified much of its symbolism, and he demonstrated the significance of all of those numbers. Seven, he explained, was the perfect number in Greek, while 12 had the place of the perfect number in Hebrew. Beginning with its opening salutation, John to the seven churches in Asia, the book is filled with the number seven. Well, the number 12 crops up almost as frequently. As for that notorious number 666, he noted that each Hebrew letter actually has a corresponding number, very common in ancient languages, and that the broad scholarly consensus was that it was the emperor Nero to whom those numbers were pointing. Nero, who John had in view as he wrote, is an interesting kind of sidebar I've recently come across N.T. Wright's suggestion that this number actually offers the greatest parody of all. That's an interesting insight, isn't it? We think of it as being this fierce number. Certainly the heavy metal bands want us to think it is. But Bishop Wright calls it a parody. The number of perfection, Wright notes, would be 777. Nero and the system he represented and embodied was but a parody of the real thing. One short of the right number three times over. Jesus was the reality. Nero just a dangerous, blasphemous copy. Which kind of begs the question, though, why, why did John write all of these numbers and symbols and include all of those strange creatures because the book was, in fact, written in code, drawing on imagery from the book of Daniel and from other apocalyptic books, John wrote in code, had to write in code, because it was a dangerously subversive document he was producing, written by John the Divine from his place of exile on the Greek island of Patmos, 
Revelation was addressed to those seven churches in Asia to provide them with hope and with a reason to keep the faith even in times of crisis, persecution, and utter chaos. The moral of the story of the book of Revelation, Larry Hurtado told us, is this. The only good Christian is a dead Christian. The only good Christian is a dead Christian, meaning that if you did live this Christian faith during times of persecution under the likes of Nero or the Emperor Domitian, you might be killed for it, could well be killed for it. But, and this is the book's most subversive and hope-filled word, but that death does not have the final word. Jesus is the final word, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. Jesus is the real thing. The Neros and the Domitians and all of the six, six, sixes of the empire, nothing more than dangerous blasphemous copies. Well, it is to that final culminating hope and light-filled horizon that the passages we'll read over these three weeks of Eastertide point, beginning with tonight, tonight's great and visionary proclamation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, remember, John is looking at a, a, a political, social, cultural world that was costing his people their lives. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more, which refers to the end of chaos. For in the biblical view of the world, the sea was a place of deep danger and chaotic unpredictability. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now notice that image. The holy city coming down out of heaven from God. As opposed to us being swept up to some other celestial place called heaven. John proclaims that he envisions all things being made new. New heaven, new earth. Bishop Wright insists it really does mean all things. Here we have the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and not least the new people, people who have woken up to find themselves beyond the reach of death, tears, and pain. The first things have passed away. God will be with them, John practically sings. God will be with them to wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. This is all so much bigger a vision, a hope, a promise than even John himself might have entirely realized as he wrote. Yes, he may well have been thinking of the persecutions suffered under Nero or Domitian. And yes, he might well have been writing a coded and subversive book to his own church communities. What he didn't know is that the book would have life. That the Spirit did, in fact, lead the church to include it and not the Didache. 
he didn't realize how it were, would resonate over the centuries. These words written in a time of chaos and crisis have sung for over 2,000 years whenever God's people face chaos and crisis. The book of Revelation was a primary source for the theologian and activist lawyer William Stringfellow when he turned to critique and challenge the America of the late 1960s and early 70s, the America of Vietnam, of the race riots, of Watergate. It was a powerful source of both comfort and protest for Alan Bosek, the colored, half black, half white, so he was called colored in South Africa, the colored theologian and pastor as he sought to stand up to the violence and oppression of apartheid-era South Africa. Revelation gave him hope. And maybe most poignantly, when we face the death of one we love, when we have reason to weep, when we feel pain, when we look at our own fragility and mortality, this text and tonight's text in a very particular way stands us back up on our feet and says that though all of these struggles and sorrows may feel very, very real, none are the final word spoken over our lives. None of them. The final word is the Word, the Christ, who says... See, I am making all things new. And then echoing the final words Jesus utters from the cross, according to the Gospel of John, it is done. I'm making all things new. It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the words of the biblical scholar Brian Peterson, in the end, what is proclaimed in the book of Revelation is that God will redeem the whole sorry story of human history. God will redeem the whole sorry story of human history. That the chain reactions of human sin will be ended and all the tears will be wiped away. The tears that God must wipe away, says Peterson, the tears that God must wipe away are not only the tears we shed, but also the tears we cause. Because the great vision of this book is that all things will indeed be made new. Well, that's the good news on this, the fifth Sunday in Eastertide. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.